Cool. Well, welcome to the Slant and Go. Um, we have a special guest with us today, Andy Schwartz. Um, we're, we're excited to talk, talk to you about uh, uh, California's SB 206, the, the bill formerly known as Fair Pay to Play. Um, and it uh, uh, having to do with kind of a, you know, compensation for um, name, image, and likeness for uh, NCAA athletes. It's um, pretty intriguing. We're going to go into some depth on it. Um, uh, so I, I saw a, a bio of you on um, the historical, historical Basketball League website, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later, but um, it said you're an antitrust economist with a subspecialty in sports economics. We're just, you know, humble podcasters here. Can you just kind of translate that for, for us and our listeners? Yeah. Um, so I've been working in antitrust economics for 20 years now, 22 years now. And... Um, so antitrust law is a really powerful part of U.S. law and, and international law as well. Essentially, in this country, there's a recognition that, that to the extent to which uh, capitalism works, it only works if there's competition. And so people sometimes ask, well, does capitalism work? And I sort of say, like, well, it's the worst economic system except for all the other ones. Right. And, um, and so... Um, but it definitely works better when we have systems where there's, there are many firms. It, capitalism works best when there are many firms that, that treat each other not as um, tacit uh, partners in, in extracting wealth from consumers or on the other side in, in extracting wealth from, from buyers, but rather as competitors. And, and so, what I do on my sort of my day job is I help lawyers and I would say mostly for plaintiffs, but sometimes for defendants, um, figure out what the, the, what the world would have been like absent alleged collusion. So you might have a situation, actually, I don't have to be hypothetical, pretty much every piece of your, of your uh, computer from the memory, the, the DRAM, the, the SRAM, the flash memory, the hard, the hard drive, the disk drive, the screen, and the battery, there have been proven antitrust cartels that involve price fixing of the parts, and people have gone to jail because when you price fix internationally, that's a criminal uh, violation. Mostly what I work on is civil violations. And the question always becomes, okay, we've determined that you fix the prices, and you have to pay us your damages, but what would the? it's based on what the prices would have been if – you hadn't done it. And then we're in this hypothetical world where we have to figure out how does competition work and what would the price be? And so that's, that's what I do. It happens that sports, well, sports in America, particularly most team sports are, are generally run by independent businesses. The Dallas Cowboys and the New England Patriots have no uh, common ownership whatsoever. They are competitors in many markets. They're certainly competitors in the labor market for mm -hmm. free agents um, and would be for incoming uh, first-year athletes if there weren't a draft, and we can talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. um, they're competitors when it comes to selling gear. Um, the New York Jets and the New York Giants maybe even compete for fans, for, for local fans. And so for, us t for a league to exist, the word league and the word cartel um, are – almost synonyms, mm -hmm. but one is legal, <laughs> the league is, and, and one is not. 
And, and so that the, the economics of why, in fact, it is good to have leagues and is bad to have cartels ends up meaning that sports economics and antitrust economics, at least in the United States, intersect a lot. So literally on my first day when I got out of grad school and started working, I was handed 10 depositions in a case where Al Davis was suing the NFL. Not the famous ones from the 80s because I was in middle school, but, right. um, but the ones in the late 90s when I was, I was older. So I, I very quickly, as I was learning practical antitrust economics, I was also learning sports economics. And at some point in my, in my career, uh, somebody said, hey, can you take all that stuff you've learned being like the NFL's favorite junior economist and um, can you bring it and think about the NCAA? Does the, should the NCAA do the same things that make it good for the NFL to maybe um, have common rules about like a draft? Mm-hmm. Does that apply to the NCAA? And, and I did this with a, a colleague who's now my business partner, Dan Rasher. Our firm is called OSKR, and I'm the S and he's the R. Okay. Um, and we wrote this paper where essentially, like the two parts of my life, the massive sports fan and the geeky economist kind of like crashed together. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized, oh my gosh, the NCAA is a cartel. And Dan, who, who's trained as a sports economist, was like, duh. <laughs> <laughs> um, he gave me a book about, you know, cartel economics of NCAA. And, and, and we wrote this paper. Uh, it was published in 2000, and pretty much the way I describe it is that we, my firm does a lot of, spo- of the sports antitrust work in this country. We probably do more than any other firm. But sports is not a huge part of the legal system, so it's a small piece of our total portfolio. So, so, but but we, we worked on White v. NCAA, we worked on O'Bannon v. NCAA, and we worked mm-hmm. on the most recent case, which has a really long name, but people call Alston or Jenkins. Um, that's not okay. either of those the actual name, as well as, as other cases in pro sports. And so at the same time that all of this price fixing in, in DRAM and SRAM and describes and all that stuff has been going on, um, the public, the world, the courts have been waking up to the fact that when the 353 Division I schools in the NCAA get together annually and agree openly, okay, we're going to only pay college athletes this much, that's price fixing because mm-hmm. um, you can price fix labor too. And even if you don't call them employees, economically labor just means the human inputs to a, a manufacturing process, creation of a sport, essentially the sort of things that economists say make some cooperation to make a league possible. Mm-hmm. Our whole paper was to the extent to which that's true in college, that's the big 10, that's the SEC, that's the mm-hmm. ACC. Those are the leagues that need a little coordination. Mm-hmm. And you can see it because in football, the NCAA does almost nothing. The only thing that the NCAA does in football is check to make sure that the bowls aren't um, untoward, like the cannabis bowl or something like that. <laughs> Certified bowls just to make sure that it's not, you know, some like, you know, sell yourself into slaverybowl.com. And then, and then also fixed prices for athletes. But none of the production uh-huh. of college football is controlled by the NCAA, and it hasn't been since a 1984 antitrust case, which prior to that, the NCAA asserted a right to restrict output 
in college sports by saying you can only have one or two games a week on television. Imagine, it's hard to think about that, but wow. before 1984, mm -hmm. there were literally two games a week on national television. And the court said, like, and this is a key thing about antitrust, I mentioned the competition part. The other part is that we have a, a real preference for more. Now, you mm -hmm. could say it in, in an age of, of the need for um, uh, being more um, resource sensitive, that that's a, maybe a bad bias, but out, more output is considered a good and less output is considered a bad. Now, in something that's intangible like sport competition, it really doesn't, um, you don't, sustainability is not quite the same issue. Like producing more cars creates pollution, does all this thing. Producing more football, okay, well, let's not maybe say football because football creates brain, brain uh, pollution. Right. But producing more basketball um, is a fairly, um, it's a low, imp low carbon input product and so generally speaking when what the courts say is that when the NCAA comes together and says things like you can only have two games a week on TV that's harming consumers without without a real benefit and so anyway the point here is that um, antitrust and sports economics in the United States go hand in hand and you can't be <clears throat> this is gonna sound, uh, the, the people who have defended the NCAA as economists are, are gonna maybe take offense to this but you can't be a serious, thoughtful economist and look at what the NCAA does and say, given the facts that are out there, that what they do is beneficial to mm -hmm. consumers or to athletes. It's obviously beneficial to the schools that extract wealth, but the kind of premises, you, you can make a theoretical article, to the extent to which consumers don't, would, would stop watching if athletes were paid, and to the extent to which somehow schools would choose, despite that fact, to pay their athletes, even knowing that that would lower their sales, then of course you need a rule to stop that. But that requires you to also believe that the 353 D1 schools and the 131 FBS schools are all run by idiots. Um, <laughs> like, 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 you know, mor morons. Because if I told you, hey, we're gonna produce, um, we're gonna produce soda, and it turns out no one likes it if you put plutonium in the soda, and plutonium is really expensive, but tell you what, let's do it. Let's all do it. And if I do it, you're gonna feel compelled to do it because, well, he's producing plutonium-infused soda. I won't, you know, it's like, that's, that's the, the kind of economics you would need to believe, like, oh, we need a rule that all the manufacturers agree not to put plutonium in the soda. But amazingly enough, we don't have that law. And yet no one puts plutonium in the soda because it's expensive and it hurts sales. But that's the, that's the argument in college sports, which is that colleges would increase their cost by paying their athletes more and customers would like it less so they would make less money. No sane business voluntarily raises costs in order to lower revenue. They raise costs in order to raise revenue by more, or they deal with an external shock, an external cost increase, and they deal with it. But the, the, the reason that prices for athletes would rise in a market is not because Qatar is offering to pay athletes more. It's because the schools themselves would raise the price through competition. Right. So that's the longest answer probably possible. How did you, <laughs> how did you get your start? But, but, um, well, it, so well, something you said, I just want to go back to just, quickly is, um, you know, 
what what is the difference between the legal difference between a, a league and a cartel? Because that seems like it's it's pretty germane to everything else we're going to talk talk about here. Yeah. So so technically, I guess a league is a cartel, and I'm drawing the distinction. I, I'm I'm using semantic narrowing to narrow the meaning of cartel to illegal cartel. Um, a cartel is simply literally an organization of independent firms that sets prices collectively. Uh -huh. But there are um, uh, ASCAP and BMI, our music in industry mm -hmm. uh, organizations that bring together all sorts of small songwriters and will sell a joint license so that if a restaurant that plays music uh, over the over the Muzak system, and they want to use uh, music that's been written by people, uh, you know, they want to play real music and not Muzak. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they don't have to track down every single songwriter and pay them 13 cents. They just pay ASCAP or BMI. And so technically, I guess in like a 19th century sense, that's a cartel. Mm -hmm. It's a cartel of small songwriters. But but if we allow ourselves the distinction to say that we'll reserve cartel for things that are found not to be uh, positive. So what makes something positive versus negative in terms of like, let's call it a, a joint, we can distinguish a joint venture and a mm -hmm. cartel. And technically all joint ventures are cartels and all cartels are joint ventures. Okay. But by making this, this semantic distinction, we can, we can talk more easily. A, a pro-competitive joint venture um, either creates a product that wouldn't otherwise exist or so enhances the value of that product to the other side of the transaction mm -hmm. that even if there is some <clears throat> negative impact on competition, it's more than made up for by the increase in value. So if you think about um, Major League Baseball, mm -hmm. which was formed in 1876 with eight teams, prior to that, they had been functioning completely independently. And so you could say the fact that those eight teams got together and agreed when they would play and when they wouldn't play and mm -hmm. who they wouldn't play because they, they stopped playing uh, you know, the Dubuque, whatever. Yeah. I, I don't, my, my dad would be mad at me for not knowing that baseball <laughs> history. Um, those were all reductions in competition, but the creation of this new thing, a league with a season and with a championship at the end mm -hmm. was very different from the world we had in 1875 where the Cincinnati Redlegs would go around and just like show up in Albany and say, Albany Knickerbockers play us and they would right. play each other in one game or three games or whatever, but it was totally ad hoc. And so like the, 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 the term we use in sports economics for that, it's, we didn't invent it, it's barnstorming. Mm -hmm. And so if you contrast a barnstorming industry with a league industry, there's real gains to consumers. Okay, I know that everyone's gonna play each other in some sort of, if not balanced schedule, most schedules are perfectly balanced, but even if it's not perfectly balanced, in some sort of regulated schedule, Mm -hmm. It's going to lead to a set of rules that let me know at the end of the season who's the best. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, nobody really disputes whether the Super Bowl winner won the NFL or not. We can argue, oh, they got hot. You know, there were some sure, of those, yeah, yeah. those Eli Manning Giants teams that is like, yeah, they weren't <laughs> the best team, but they won. And so, and, and, and whereas, and you can think a little bit about college football, especially pre-BCS, where we could have four or five champions so that was like a mixed system um, where we had a bunch of leagues but we didn't have a system uh, you can think of European soccer European soccer I think is the most competitive industry 
every every country and it's not even country really because the uk is one country but scotland has a different system than england wales is a little weird because there's some welsh teams in the english system and but so if you every country has its own 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 champion but everyone recognizes that europe is an important thing and so there's a champions league on top of that mm-hmm. and and so there's there's a structure it's not at the same time there is some barnstorming in soccer people will play clubs will play friendlies in other mm-hmm. countries um the kind of cooperation that that turns just random random friendlies think of the world cup versus the non-world cup years when the u.s national team just goes around mm-hmm. and plays belgium and plays mexico those games are interesting but the world cup is way more interesting yeah. and right. and that now that that's that that's not really a league it's a tournament but a tournament is is also a form of a cartel right. uh or at least could be and, and so that's the real difference is that are you creating something are you generating something that is a better product mm-hmm. either creating something mm-hmm. from scratch or improving it in contrast what cartels tend to do is either hinder innovation so um there was a legal newspaper cartel in the netherlands until the eu um uh turned anti there used to be in the eu antitrust law used to be decided country by country and around 2000 or so they all agreed okay we're gonna have a common antitrust enforcement Mm -hmm. and so these little quirks the netherlands they decided that the newspaper business was too important to allow competition and so they had fixed price, a cartel and all the prices were fixed and, and there were rules and they ended that. Um, and so what the cartel did in some sense was prevent innovation. There was no real, there was no real point in trying to compete because everybody could, you know, like the prices were all set the same way. Uh, Standard oil is the classic American mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. cartel. OPEC is a cartel. In both those cases, the oil isn't any better. The oil isn't delivered in some new, interesting way. They just didn't produce as much as the market demanded, which allowed the prices to go up. And in 1973, it, was a, it, was a, it went from a fairly competitive market to a very restricted market, mm-hmm. and that's caused the first oil shock. And you can say, in some sense, the whole 1970s were destroyed in some ways economically, was a lot of strife in the world. There was war in the world because of an economic cartel, and and that's the real distinction. That like that's why economists get to testify in legal cases about sports leagues is because every time a sports league does something, just because it's a league doesn't mean that act is positive. So mm-hmm. Jeffrey Kessler, who is the lead sort of one of the lead lawyers in the current round of NCAA cases, early in his career worked on a case called McNeil versus NCAA where the, um, the NFLPA, the Players Association for the NFL Players, in, they dissolved themselves. And by doing so, um, there, was no more, there was no collective bargaining agreement. And they argued that the, free, the, the salary cap in the NFL was a cartel, and they won. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we have salary caps now is because in that court, in that case, the court essentially said, unless it's collectively bargained, a salary cap is illegal. Hmm. And so the but NFL PA reformed. The, the NFL PA reformed, and as part of that reforming, they settled the case with the Collective Bargaining Act. Right. 
And it led to, it went from, the NFL had horrible free agency before that. And now they have mildly bad free agent <laughs> uh, yeah. for the players. It's good for the for the owners. Sure. Um, but but so that that's sort of the thing is that even though the courts agree that for the purposes of creating the the simple act of saying that NFL teams can't play non NFL teams mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. a collective boycott, and which would be illegal in a lot of situations, is not illegal in sports. Everyone agrees that's pro competitive because it creates a league. It doesn't immunize the NFL from other other antitrust, and that's the same thing with the NCAA. Even though the NCAA very often wins cases, antitrust cases, where um, I think the bat companies sued the NCAA when the NCAA adopted the, a certain standard of aluminum bat mm-hmm. that was designed to minimize, you know, like I think like foul balls to the head or something like that. I, I don't know anything about baseball technology. Um, one of the baseball co- bat company sued them saying this was favoring their competitor and essentially what the court said said is yes in in some other universe you should be able to sell to each individual team and and there shouldn't be a, a collective agreement on they won't shop from you but this is a legitimate thing that a league is doing to not even a league a, a standards body above a league is doing to set standards and so um the benefits to consumers and to athletes of not being harmed outweigh the the loss of competition hmm. cool i um yeah that's helpful uh i never really thought about it that way but it's sort of like the like you know the nfl which is the thing that we talk about the most like their job is really to create a narrative right like that there is there's a beginning and an end of the season and there's somebody who wins and otherwise you just have random teams playing each other i, I never really thought of it that way yeah and so um you're you're accidentally almost quoting directly from the case law from the very first sets of Raiders litigation. Oh, wow. Um, I never thought of it. Where, where the judge specifically <laughs> said, like, you know, the creation of a sports league is a, is a different product than just teams randomly barnstorming around the country. And it has led to, so if you, if you go and look at almost any antitrust case with a sports league, you have to, in any antitrust case, almost any antitrust case, you have to define what the relevant product is and what the relevant market is. Mm-hmm. And the definition of what the NFL produces mm-hmm. is a series of football comp, comp, uh, competitions culminating in a, a Super Bowl champion, uh-huh. something like that. It's, it's this phrase. And the SEC in, in, in NCAA litigation has conceded in, in interrogatories that what the SEC produces in terms of football SEC football is a series of games among Southeastern Conference opponents that culminates in the SEC championship. Uh And that's the product. It's not individual games. And so then that allows them to say, you have to have the SEC to produce a season of SEC football. Uh Um, And so that's that's the line. What the NCAA tries to say is you have to have the NCAA to produce a season of NCAA football but it's false yeah, because there isn't such a thing as NCAA football, right? And, and, I mean, a, and then they try to say yeah, basketball and, and it's a little different because there is a tournament at the end, but literally all you need the NCAA for is to produce the last three weeks of the season. Right. Right. That's what I was going to ask. Like the BCS, is that, is that their attempt at kind of uh, legitimacy or something? I mean, the BCS there are elements of the BCS that I've, I've, I've written about this that I think they certainly were anti-competitive when 
when there wasn't a playoff. They are less competitive than they could be um, in the sense that they, they have designed a system that doesn't actually um, generate a national champion because it's impossible mm -hmm. to sort of invite all, all the potential champions. And some years people go, yeah, the back 12 sucks. And so what's the big deal? But economically, a system that, that, that actually met that need. But the thing that's anti-competitive is the NCAA has a rule that says that no one else can start a rival BCS. The BCS is the only tournament that's allowed to have two, two bowl games for a team. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So um, if you and I wanted to start a bowl game, we'd get it certified by the NCAA as long as we aren't um, engaged in some sort of nefarious conduct. And then, then we want to say, well, actually what we want to do is have, we want to invite the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth team because we think that the bias in the BCS system towards SEC teams leads to good teams being left out. Mm -hmm. We can't. It's against NCAA rules. It's blatantly anti-competitive to allow one organization to produce a product and then deny anybody else to. But I don't think anybody but, but me cares about that. <laughs> they'll, they'll figure it out. And, and, um, mm -hmm. but, um, but, it's pro, but the BCS is pro-competitive. It's good in the sense that if you think about it, without some organization doing that, we'll be, we would be back in the situation where, you know, we fight over whether the fourth team in or the fifth, the first team out um, is mm -hmm. problematic, but no one thinks that the team that wins the championship isn't the best team. There's yeah. very rarely an argument that says the team that won two games mm -hmm. in, in the CFP um, is worse than the, the team left sitting out. Mm -hmm. um, sure. so, it, so it serves consumer need, needs. It's a product that people like. It's very popular. And that's sort of what we look to. And, and if you look at cartel, cartel conduct, the cartel conduct harms consumers. So we were talking about James Wiseman before we started recording. James Wiseman is now apparently going to sit out 12 basketball games and then also crazily, he's being fined $11,000 for having taken money because he's so poor, he didn't have enough money to move. Uh -huh. I don't understand where the NCAA thinks he's going to get that money without doing other things that they say are also bad, like right. commercializing his name, image, and likeness. But the idea that you can find somebody in an and also claim at the same time that the people are not your employees or your labor force or part of it is crazy, but, but just focusing on, on the game suspension. Yep. Consumers in Memphis and consumers in the cities that Memphis plays are harmed by that. There mm -hmm. is nobody who is going to be happier to be going to any of those 12 games with James Wiseman sitting out. And so that's a sign that what the NCAA does with respect to athletes is not pro-competitive, but anti-competitive, because the 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 prop the the enforcement of those rules makes the product less good, not more good. Yeah, better, I guess, is the word we use in English. <laughs> <laughs> more good. And, and you even uh, even think about how it extends to the teams that are supposed to play Memphis within that twelve-game span, right? I mean, those you know, I don't know what the schedule is, but there could have been some you know Michigan State or or some other like 
perennial, you know, college football uh, or college basketball team that usually makes noise in the tournament. I mean, they build, you know, their case for where they're seated in the tournament based on, you know, mm-hmm. all the things that go into it, right? Like strength of strength of schedule. Yeah, they won't. Everything. They won't be able to point to a, 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 a you know, a close, a, a good win against a, a strong Memphis team because everyone will yeah. go, yeah, but that was when Wiseman was out. Right. Mm-hmm. It's but all, yeah. also, if you think about it, those a lot of those, a lot of the games prior to conference season are oftentimes. Um, they're capitalizing on people's eagerness to get back into basketball. Mm-hmm. The, the game itself is often not that good. Right. Uh, I, I'm a Stanford basketball fan, um, I guess sort of kind of these days, but I haven't gone to many games in a while because the Encore product got so bad, right at the same time that the Warriors product got so good. Mm-hmm. And the contrast was just too great to ignore anymore. I just, yeah. I stopped going to games and watching the Warriors and said, now this year, maybe I'll start gravitating back. <laughs> um, but, but, but like, you know, when, when Stanford put, brings in schools that they think they're going to be, mm. the fun of that game is watching my team gel, start to gel, get mm-hmm. better, better mm-hmm. work through it. It's like almost like a scrimmage. Right. Um, to the extent to which Memphis is doing that, People are like, like the, the draw was to watch James Wiseman in his one and only year in, in college. Yep. And now 12 games is like more than 30% of the season. So um, no one's helped. And then their argument would be like, yes, but we are preserving amateurism. But the problem there is that there, there really is no evidence that anybody has ever gone to a game that they wouldn't have gone to anyway because mm-hmm. – the athletes were paid less. Yeah. Um, and so there's no real. Uh, yeah. And, and you got to call into question what competitive advantage was he really gaining by being able to afford to move to uh, go to school uh, and to, to be on the team, you know, like I'm sure. Yeah. Well, so um, this is one of my soapbox issues. Like I think that the right to access to economic markets is a right. Mm-hmm. I think the privilege of, mildly less um, mildly more balanced basketball games is not a right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when, when a school says, if we allow you to exercise your rights, we might not be able to field quite as competitive a team as we would like. I feel like the, the loser and that should be the school, the team, because there is no legal right to be almost as good as the team you're playing or uh, closely matched with the team you're playing. But there is a right to the Sherman Act to non-collusive markets. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, but, but second, there really is n- no salary caps don't help competitive balance. Revenue sharing by itself doesn't help competitive balance. Uh, maximum, uh, individual maximum salaries to individual athletes really don't help competitive balance. And if you want an example, the strictest maximum uh, uh, player cap era of the NBA was when the Miami heat had LeBron James, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch, because by capping the the, the player max, they were able to to afford three Mm -hmm. superstars superstars. in in a open market. They would, once they bought LeBron James, they would have been tapped out. Yep. And, and so, um, like, so it's like a twofold thing. One is that not letting James Wiseman get paid doesn't help competitive balance. 
and also not letting James Wiseman pay so that somehow you could have competitive balance confuses human rights with sports teams' convenience. Okay, let's, um, let's dig into the, the legislation a little bit. Um, I'll take a shot at kind of describing it and allow you <laughs> to correct me where I'm sure I'm going to get some, some aspects of it wrong. But um, you were a, a co-sponsor of um, SB 206, the, um, the legislation that recently passed in California. I mean, just, I mean, less than two months ago. I mean, this is really fresh. Um, just signed into law on uh, last day of uh, September. Um, passed unanimously in the assembly, uh, which to me was, I mean, in this kind of divisive political era was, is kind of amazing. Um, doesn't go into effect until January, 2023, but it's, um, let me see if I can characterize what this does. So the, the legislation, it, it, um, it makes it so schools have to allow student athletes to uh, be able to profit off of their name, image, and likeness, um, that they can, um, they can not be restricted from doing that. Is that a fair way to? Yeah, and, and, and yeah, and you, and it's it is hard to say it right, but you got it right, which is that it doesn't require anything. Mm -hmm. Right. It it prohibits certain conduct by schools. Like basically, it prohibits schools from exerting punishments for athletes exercising their rights. So you could say that it allows athletes to exercise their rights. But in theory, they already they always had that right. Uh -huh. This just just outlaws the the negative consequence that schools threatened to apply mm -hmm. and have have applied. Mm -hmm. and, and similarly, the NCAA, um, if athletes do choose to exercise mm -hmm. those rights, and and yeah. you can tell. So first of all, in California, I didn't know this until they asked me. You know, when you hear a bill sponsor, normally you think that's like the legislator who does it. In California, we call those the authors. The okay. sponsors are the not are just the citizens that who talk to a legislator and say, "Hey, I think there's a problem, and you should write a bill oh, okay, to okay. fix yeah, it." I was wondering that's, about that. That's yeah. why I'm the sponsor because I'm not a, I'm not a state legislator. Yeah. Um, but I I talked to Nancy Skinner in 2015, and. Um, suggested that she she was running for state senate that if she won that this was a community she represents Oakland um, this was something that that it was directly affecting her constituents mm -hmm. um, you know Oakland is a net exporter of college athletic athlete talent um, because Oakland doesn't you know Laney College uh, isn't really a basketball power powerhouse mm -hmm. um, uh, but a lot of Oaklanders go to Cal or they go to other schools along the West Coast mm -hmm. or the whole country, really, but in particular the West Coast. And, and so to the extent to which she could effectively recognize that there are four years of her constituents' lives where their earning power is being severely restricted by a cartel. Um, and and that, that, that cartel language, it's not in, the, in the, the bill, but the fact that it's not requiring anything, it's simply saying let the forces of competition play out without hindrance to the extent to which I had any influence. And that's, I guess my influence because like that's, that's my training is, is that this is a market where I don't like some markets. We definitely need to trim the rough edges off of, 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 of laissez-faire economics. We don't want to allow pollution. We don't want to allow 
firms to drive wages down to one dollar a day like in the depression mm-hmm. but in in the rule in college sports athletes are worth more the market rate for athletes is higher than mm-hmm. the current rate and yeah. so we don't have to regulate with a minimum wage for example mm-hmm. we could if we just say stop colluding the price will go up and mm-hmm. so this is a, a very small because essentially what the ncaa has said is that we are colluding on name, image, and likeness rights on any sort of sponsorships, and we're setting the price at zero. Because mm-hmm. if you are a penny, we'll group boycott you and not let you participate. And then right, yeah. name, image, and likeness value plummets at that point. So there are some articles, I've been doing some, some research preparation for this, and some articles that claim that, uh, I mean, I think these people are pretty uninformed, that the schools will be paying athletes to play sports, right? Like, that, that just sounds like, you know, FUD to me, like they're not going to be collecting game checks. So what is, what does the law actually make possible? It's, um, yeah. So, and that's, I think been helped a little bit or that misperception has been encouraged by the fact that the bill was originally called the fair pay to play act. Uh-huh. And that's not the name now it was taken out. in I think when it moved from the Senate to the assembly, um, and there were amendments made and, and, um, but, when Senator Skinner originally wrote the bill, and, and I should mention that she has a co-author, Senator Bradford, mm-hmm. um, who's from Southern California, and he played a big role too. But Senator Skinner was really, she's, a, she's very impressive. And, and she, she's, the, she's the person who pushed it through. When she originally wrote it, it was, it also outlawed an agreement not to pay athletes. So that's why it was called the Fair Pay to Play Act. And, at the time, you know, I, at this point, everyone should recognize, like, I didn't do anything after suggesting it to the senator, except they were very kind and they kept me in the loop and they would call me and say, what do you think about this? Because I think they knew that I'm such a hothead that if they put out a bad bill, that I would say, like, yeah, this was my idea, but I hate it. Don't vote for it. <laughs> so, so, so they kept me involved. And there was a time, there was a moment when I threatened to do that and it, it succeeded in making one bad thing not happen. And that was like my one shot and I used it. Um, <laughs> but um, she originally, it was like, yeah, you, and I said, go, don't call it pay to play. Pay to play is, is a propaganda term that, that's designed by the NCAA to make people not think of college athletes as regular laborers because like we don't call it pay to consult. We just say Mm -hmm. I'm a consultant. We don't call it pay to coach college. We just say someone's a college coach, Mm -hmm. but pay to play. We, we use There's three spaces where we use that. We use that when we're trying to denigrate the possibility of paying college athletes. We use it to describe bribes to Congress people and we (laughs) use it to describe bribes to DJs to put certain records on the radio. And so when the other two uses of the phrases are illegal, when you use this phrase pay to play, you imply that it too is illegal. And the FBI even fell for it uh, recently and tried to create and and successfully created, at least until the appeal, a crime of essentially giving somebody money to go to a college in the Adidas sneaker cases. So um, I'm, I'm an amateur linguist. Uh, George Lakoff is this uh, uh, linguist at Berkeley, and he talks all the time about how once you use a word like that, you have created a framework mm-hmm. you can't get sure. out of. Yep. 
Um, and so I, I said to them, I love the fact that you're going to make it illegal for California schools to collude on pay, but don't use their language. Now, the only reason it got taken out was not because of my linguistic analysis, <laughs> but because that when it went to the assembly, people in the assembly said, no bleeping way that are we going to allow colleges to pay the players. So when they took that part of the bill out, um, they also took the, the language out. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a victory for linguistics and a loss for athletes and a loss really for um, like full citizenship for athletes is sort of the way I, will, I like to think about it, mm -hmm. which is essentially it's against the law for the same colleges in the Pac-12 to get together and say, we're all going to pay our professors the same amount. Mm -hmm. But it's not against the law to say we're all going to pay our college athletes the same amount. It's also against the law for them to say we're all going to pay our coaches the same amount. The yeah. NCAA tried that in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. The coaches had the National Association of Basketball Coaches, the NABC, sue on their behalf. They have like a union, right? Like a, or a trade organization or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. They sued on their behalf and the court said, you can't do that. You, you can't. Like they literally said like, sure, it lowers your cost, but you, there, there's no, it's not pro-competitive. It's not legal to lower your cost by denying people the fruits of their own enterprise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that, that language like strikes me as being exactly what the schools do with respect to uh, scholarship limits, pay mm -hmm. limits for, for athletes. But for whatever reason, um, everybody else in the world seems a little blind to that. Um, yeah. but, but essentially, yeah, that, 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 the people who think that this allows at schools to pay their athletes don't know how to read. Um, <laughs> so the way I've chosen not to use that skill. Yeah. The athletes will get compensated by, they can hire an agent who could yes. then get them into a video game or uh, they could set up a sports camp where their likeness is used or they could have endorsements or something like that's how, that's how a player would make money. Is that right? Yeah. And let me talk about the agent thing for a second. Um, that eight only right until very, very recently it was against NCAA rules to have an agent. Mm -hmm. You hired an agent, you were expelled from NCAA sports. Mm -hmm. After the sneaker let's, uh, stuff came out, they have allowed, if you pass some sort of quality test where uh -huh. the NCAA sniffs you and checks you out and decides, yeah, you might make a professional league in basketball and you're male, you can have an agent. But if you're female, you cannot. And so how this is legal under Title IX or various other, uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, rules that prohibit sexual discrimination is beyond me. But in California, that's no longer the case. In California, at least starting in 2023, yeah. all women can have agents, all men, whether they're good at basketball or mm -hmm. bad at basketball or good at some other sport. Because you're not allowed to have an agent if you're a football player. Right. But you are allowed to have one if you're an elite male basketball player. It doesn't make any sense because there's a, there's a women's professional league. Like, why would they not? They're, they're going to, there's, there is potential that they will. Right. And, and there's, ec there's, there's economic reasons why no one leaves college basketball early. And it's essentially because the pay in the WNBA is so bad hmm. that um, the value of housing and the value of food <laughs> and the fun of college maybe um, exceeds 
the value of an NBA of WNBA salary That's and the grind right. and the road travel. Um, so that essentially for a, like a junior who's like has one more year, assuming she doesn't hate school, she's actually better off staying in school. Um, uh, in part because uh, title nine means that women's basketball players like get, I mean, it's not, not just head around. There's some demand for the sport too, mm-hmm. but it ensures that women basketball players um, rise or fall sort of with the men's basketball team and with the, the men's athletes in general, but there's no title nine for the NBA versus the WNBA. Sure. Right. Um, and so pay is horrible for the WNBA. Yeah. You know, in the lead up to, to the vote, uh, to the, you know, kind of the legislation getting passed, um, there was a lot of uh, really dire, dire kind of predictions, you know, um, Mark Emmert, the NCAA president said it was an existential threat to college sports. You know, this could be the end of, of college sports. And then dogs and cats living together. Yes. <laughs> just a few days after the bill passed, uh, there was an article in, on Forbes.com, which said it's, it's basically just a moral victory. So I'm, I'm kind of confused here. Like which, <laughs> what is it? Is it, <laughs> is it an existential threat or just a moral victory? Can, can I be scatological? <laughs> sure. Um, because I'm a liberated husband, uh, I do some of the chores around the house, uh-huh. and um, one of the ones that falls to me occasionally is having to clean the toilet. Sure. If you have a really nasty toilet bowl and you just get at it and you're scrubbing away and you're scrubbing away at it, and you like look down and like, wow, this is so much cleaner. If you walk away and you come back in, it's still full of shit. I think that analogy captures like. Um, what Senator Skinner and Senator Bradford have done, in my mind, is a really, really important step towards the full citizenship of college athletes, and it shouldn't be diminished. Mm-hmm. But it's like someone who's halfway, or not even halfway through cleaning the bowl, there's, it's, there's, still, there's still so much crap in there <laughs> that, um, that to say like, oh, like this is a victory, it's weird, because it's like, yeah, it's cleaner, but it isn't clean. And, um, uh, and so why is it 2023? It's 2023 because some committee member, not even committee, committee chair, basically every committee chair and every committee in the state Senate and the state assembly in California. And I, this is benefit of me having been the sponsor of this bill. I have learned this. They can kill any bill they want each person. And some committee chair said, I'm afraid of playing chicken with the NCAA. And if we have this bill effective January 1, 2020, mm-hmm. which is now scarily like a month and a half away. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> um, if they, we're calling their bluff. And if they ban us, like there's not even enough time to like work it out. Mm-hmm. And so this very smart, um, uh, lawyer, sports law guy, his name is Len Simon. He's a professor, this is horrible, at one of the schools in San Diego. I'm not sure if it's US, USD, UCSD, or San Diego State. Sure. Um, uh, I apologize, Len, if you listen to this. Um, <laughs> and a very good uh, practicing attorney as well, who lives in the district of that committee member, said, we'll just put in a delay. And if you put in a delay, you've set up a, a marker and you give, you give space for everyone to work it out. Now, I don't know why how three years was chosen. That seems a lot yeah. to me, but 
but it was a genius thing because I don't think it would have, well, I know it wouldn't have gotten out of that committee. So it mm -hmm. would have died. Yeah. Um, but it also really, like you, you can see it now out in the rest of the states that they're going faster and they're, they're, and like all of a sudden California looks really moderate yeah. because they gave some time for the NCA to figure things out. And as part of that process, they put language in the bill saying it's the intent of the state of California to look at changes because the NCA is like, just give us more time and we'll change. And so there's something in the bill that basically says, look, yeah, if you do something good, we've got three years, we can, we can amend the law mm -hmm. and match up with whatever you do. But so that's all for the good. Despite being the sponsor of the bill, despite thinking that, that, you know, it's, it's a step forward. I think that the rhetoric that has emerged from this has been horrible. And you already see the NCAA doing its thing. They put out an, an announcement, I feel like it's like two weeks ago now, maybe three weeks ago, yeah, that's about right. where they said they had decided to allow athletes to get paid for their name imagine like this, or at least that's what the headline said. But then when you looked more closely, they didn't say paid, they said benefit. Mm. Allow college athletes, they didn't call them college athletes, they used another term that I don't use, student athlete, which uh -huh. is also a rhetorical trick to get you to think, oh, they're just students, so how would they get paid? Right. Um, uh, to allow them to benefit, a benefit <clears throat> is a code word, which in NCAA's language, one of the ways you benefit is from coaching and the way, how do they measure the size of that benefit by how much the coach gets paid. Uh, and so <laughs> you benefit from your coach's salary. Um, players in Alabama are really benefiting. They're benefiting a lot and they are benefiting from good coaching. But if, if every single coach's pay was cut in half, the benefit wouldn't change. Right. Um, and and it, people might say, Oh, but they'd all go to the NFL, but we know Nick Saban has, there's no demand for Nick Saban in the NFL because they tried him and spit him out as a loser. He's only good in a system where he can recruit all the best athletes and then train them up in a system that distributes the talent around. He's a mediocre coach. Mm -hmm. And um, they said benefit. And then they also said consistent with the collegiate model. Right. Well, the collegiate model is code for amateurism. And from the, the O'Bannon case, the language that they're trying to fit this all into is one that says there's literally a sentence that if an athlete is paid, if an athlete is paid at all, I'm paraphrasing. I said literally, but I'm paraphrasing. If an athlete is paid even a little bit for his or her name, image, and likeness beyond the cost of attendance, which they already receive, mm -hmm. there's no principled stopping point up to their full, uh, the full value of their name, image, and likeness. And thus, there's a quantum leap between uh, compensation tethered to education and not tethered to education. And that tethered to education language means, when they say the collegiate model, they mean it has to be, quote unquote, tethered to education. Well, what does that mean for endorsing sneakers mm -hmm. to be tethered to education? Uh, maybe they're going to make it contingent on graduation, in which case all the one and done athletes aren't going to get any money. <laughs> um, at least until they're 40 and they go back to school and they graduate. Um, maybe it means you have to do an internship and getting to do an internship, I think is great, but having to do an internship, I don't think is great. Um, and the example I give for this is that um, Bryce Love, who was at Stanford, 
runner-up for the Heisman in his uh, uh, junior year. Mm-hmm. He's pre-med. He's going to go to medical school. Um, what does doing a marketing internship at Adidas do for him? Mm-hmm. But he would have been able to commercialize his name, image, and likeness if it had been allowed. And if it's forced to be into some some related internship, he's suddenly at like up in Beaverton, Oregon, doing marketing stuff when he should be studying for the MCATs. Mm-hmm. And so, like the 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 system that the NCA is eventually going to settle on. Oh, also, and they announced today that no earlier than January of 2021 will they have a, a discussion over plans for this. So that's the, the absolute earliest that they're going to have a rule is 2021, but probably not even then because that's when they're going to first start discussing it. So uh, I've never seen the NCA consensus on an, on an idea on day one. It usually takes forever. So this is going to go – I think we're going to let's Matt, let's leave the HBL out of it, which I know we're going to talk about. But but if if we if it's just led to the state legislators, we're going to have a series of bills that I think are in some ways weaker than the California bills. I know when it goes to the federal level, and there will be a push to make a federal law because there is some confusion over how can you have different state laws. Although we do just fine with our insurance laws are all done by state, our mm-hmm. our employment laws are all done by state. Uh, our murder laws are all done by state. Um, uh, the, how, the, the federal legislation is going to be gutted by pro-NCAA people. Hmm. On one day, a couple of weeks ago, Mitt Romney said, oh, like, this is really important. We, we, the NCAA needs to know we're on, we're on to them. The next day, he's saying things like, well, we can't allow people to have Ferraris on campus, which is <laughs> massive racial coded language that comes straight out of the NCAA talking points. Why can't we have that? Right. We're perfectly fine with Mitt Romney having so many cars. He has a car elevator (laughs) from all of his money from Bain Capital. Uh But why would it be bad for an athlete to earn so much money that he could afford a Ferrari? Yeah. If that's the value they're providing to the school. Right. And when, when you have free enterprise Republicans saying this, and then you have Barack Obama, who is a hero of mine, coming out and saying, well, I don't know if we should be allowing schools to use it as a recruiting tool. Like, why? <laughs> like, and so um, uh, I, am, I am certain that any federal legislation will like, likely preempt the state legislation because typically mm-hmm. if the feds say this is a federal thing, that, that'll, that'll preempt the state thing. So if a federal law is passed, the California law will go away. Mm-hmm. And, or, or at least potentially could go away. And then also I'm certain it will be much more, much less pro-athlete. But let's say I'm wrong and, and the California law goes into fruition and it forces the NCAA to act like it does and everybody else copies it. It's still really weak. <laughs> it's weak because in the law it says that there's a conflict between a school's endorser and an athlete's endorser. The school wins. Yep. Normally, if if... Andrew and Noor, if you are, are trying to form a joint venture and one of you is sponsored by Adidas and one of you is sponsored by Nike, you have to negotiate over who's going to sponsor this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the winner probably gives something to the loser in that negotiation to reach an agreement. But the schools are granted the win off mm-hmm. the bat. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's a, 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 a sort of an unplanned for negative consequence to that, which is that 
UCLA, which is an Under Armour school, is going to find that any athlete who wants to work with Nike won't come to UCLA. Uh-huh. It's, gonna, it's like, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Ah, we have complete control over athletes. Yes, once they get there. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, think, so, so, yeah the, the recruiting implications to me are super interesting. Right. And, yeah. and the recruiting implications are directly contrary to the rhetoric of the people who say they don't want athletes to get paid. One of the reasons they don't want them to get paid is we don't want schools choose, we don't want athletes choosing a school based on non-educational factors, as if anybody who goes to Alabama over Duke for football <laughs> is to, or let's say Vanderbilt, they're both in the SEC, right? Yeah. But a lot of people prefer Alabama. They're not going for the academics. Um, but now if you have a system where you have to think, gosh, I really have a good rule. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Nike basketball athlete in my, with my, um, AAU team Mm -hmm. and I have good relationships and I'm going to be a one and done guy and I want to sign with Nike or I think I want to sign with Nike. It would be horrible for me to go to an Under Armour school for a year. Mm -hmm. Um, they're going to, the, it's going to be sneaker school. As the mm-hmm. as the choice, and you're gonna. I'm only gonna look at Nike schools, mm-hmm. and like even a free marketer like me thinks like like that's a bad outcome. I think people should choose based on all of their choices simultaneously. I want to pick the best combination of of education right. and mm-hmm. and sneaker, yeah. and even maybe go to an Under Armour school, but have a deal with Nike and spat up my sneakers. I don't know if you know what spatting is. This is when they people put white tape over there oh, over right. the oh yeah logo. um when i play but you know and everyone recognizes that i'm wearing the school's under armor sneakers but i have a a, a personal endorsement deal but that that isn't going to happen in the book so that's one bad thing about it but the other thing that's bad about it is the stuff that got stripped out that the process of going from committee to committee to committee the athletes aren't full citizens the athletes there's a there's a rule in there that says schools cannot pay high schoolers just out of the blue um if a college wants to pay a high school musician to come and do a gig they can but now it's illegal or it will be illegal in 2023 huh. for any university to give any money to any prospective student athlete like why why would we want that and like oh it's because one of the committee chairs husband is a high school college a high school football coach and says, I don't want colleges paying my athletes. But here's, here's why I think colleges should pay high schoolers. Some high schoolers are really good at their sport and so-so academically. Mm-hmm. And they might not qualify to get into the school. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be great if schools paid for them to take SAT prep mm-hmm. instead of, for example, paying someone else to take their SATs for them or, <laughs> or loosening their standards. Yeah. Like, Providing some uh, 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 a 15-year-old high school phenom with supplemental educational benefits at the high school level in order to not just get in but be ready for college mm. strikes me as being an extremely good thing. Yeah, and California has just outlawed it all because some you know some crazy fear of like oh well we don't want to have recruiting wars where people can pay. Now the good news is is that we succeeded in not putting in the language of offering to pay. So it's not illegal for a school to offer to pay a high school. But if you go to Florida, the Florida bill that's, that's um, being pushed does make it illegal uh, to pay or offer to pay a high school athlete. Yeah. So um, like there's all these ways in which 
the positive steps forward come with steps backward. And Ramogi Huma, who's a, a very strong advocate for athletes, he runs the National College Players Association, was involved in the Northwestern attempt to unionize the football team, mm -hmm. doing this stuff for 20 years. He is another sponsor of this bill. And he and I, he talked me off a ledge. There were a couple times, and this high school thing was one of them, where I was like, I don't know if I can support this bill. And he's like, look, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. um, this is a good thing. As long as no college wants to pay high schoolers really anyway. <laughs> yes, I can see your arguments, Andy, for why they might. It might be good, but they aren't doing that. They don't want to do that. So, like, this is giving up something. But in my mind, getting most of your rights still means you're not a full citizen. Getting most of your rights means there are some rights that you don't have. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, maybe this is a good time to transition to the HBL. Um, like, everything we're doing in the HBL is designed counter to that. If is designed to treat the athlete as the center of the entity and the, the athlete's rights as preeminent, and then we're designing a business model around that in the same way that normal businesses that employ workers who have workers' rights have to do it. Now, I know that sounds Pollyannish and that people work in sweatshops and things like that. But generally speaking, as, as bad as you might think the conditions of a FedEx employee are, mm -hmm. FedEx is constrained by the law, gives people breaks, recognizes that you know they have to follow health and safety standards and complies generally speaking with the law and well, people have the right to quit and that, that kind of thing they have a, they have some leverage in the relationship and they have a right to go to work at UPS tomorrow without mm -hmm. sitting out a year to acclimate mm -hmm. um, yep. yeah <laughs> and all these things right so so what we're doing in the HBL um, like I put it out as a contrast between yes like we have scrubbed some of some of the shit off the edge of the bowl <laughs> with SB 206, but we're not even forcing people to like drink out of the toilet bowl in the HBL. We're, 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 we have a system that's designed to eat off of, of, off of, you know, fine China mm -hmm. and, um, and use silverware and, and we can still make money in that model. So how does it, how does it actually work? What it's going to be a separate league Would would students be going to school but not playing for the school, be playing for the HBL? I don't, I don't understand. Yes, yes. so we've evolved some. Originally, what the idea was to work, the reason we're, we're, we're still tentative, we're still temporarily called the HBL. We're in the process of renaming ourselves. But the HB came from the fact that my idea was to work very closely with the historically black colleges and universities, the HBCUs, mm -hmm. who are part of the NCAA for the most part. Some of them are in the NAIA, but who don't, they are the least uh, benefited schools within the cartel. They're in the cartel. Mm -hmm. They participate in the extraction of wealth from African-American men, but they don't even get a lot out of it. And so mm -hmm. it seemed like they would be a natural partner since the mission of HBCUs is, to, is the socioeconomic uplift of African-Americans to come in and say, like, maybe you should start by not extracting their labor value for zero. And... Mm -hmm. um, we didn't make any headway. It felt like a setback, but it's actually a blessing in disguise because now we're we are essentially able to fix more problems because we don't have to compromise uh, the, the education of our athletes either. And I don't mean that by going to HBCUs. I mean that by allowing schools to dictate 
schools dictate athletes' majors. If you're on the basketball team, you need to um, – you can't take the – you can't be pre-med because the, the labs are at the same time as basketball practice, things like that. By being outside the system, we avoid that. So what are we? We're a professional college basketball league. We're going to play from essentially Memorial Day to Labor Day, which minimizes the overlap with school. It allows our athletes, when they are in school, and every athlete has to be in some form of higher education, two-year college, four-year college, or certified vocational program. Um, one of the, the, the cheats of the system in college sports is that some athletes are forced into educational programs that they're not ready for. Mm-hmm. Um, like we talked about not preparing people for any education. Um, I don't think that that means they don't deserve to be there, but they're just not ready to be there yet. Then they, um, they go back to school when they're done with their college basketball career. The scholarship is for five years, and it's, it, it can be banked. And it's mm-hmm. guaranteed. If you play a single game in the HBL, we're going to pay for five years of your post-secondary education whenever you do them. And we have a separate nonprofit foundation set up to fund that. Hmm. So um, essentially it's separate. Again, it avoids the conflict of interest. In order to qualify for that scholarship, you have to play a game for us. But once you do, even if you're horrible, it turns out you're horrible. Uh And we made a really bad decision and you don't play in year two, your scholarship continues. Wow. Um, So that's one thing. All of our athletes will be in some form of education. They'll go to schools in the metropolitan area of the teams that are in and our, and our our investors are mostly tech investors so we keep getting we keep getting asked can, can you beta test this somehow and i would make this joke like what do you mean beta test like <laughs> have me play yeah. like like not good basketball players like we kind of have to like launch yeah like, but what we realized we could do is we don't need to be a national 30 team league on day one so we're starting with eight teams, and we're starting in ACC country, the heart of basketball, where demand for basketball is the highest, uh-huh. where supply of basketball talent is the best, because both the DMV, uh, you know, uh, uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and we'll call it the Piedmont, the Carolinas, uh-huh. uh, super strong for producing great basketball talent. And it doesn't hurt that David West, who is our, our COO, calls Raleigh, North Carolina home. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we're starting with teams uh, as far north as Philadelphia and as far south as Atlanta. Um, Atlanta, Charlotte, um, Raleigh, Norfolk, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, D.C., Baltimore, and Philadelphia. Wow. Um, we're going to have a 24-ish game season in 2021, our first season. And um, so that means teams will either play three or four times against each other. Uh, the, the idea is our athletes are going to get paid. So their salary for – this is essentially a summer job. It's a really good paying summer job. Our, our athletes are going to get paid fifty dollars to $150,000. $150,000 will be for the guys that are getting $150,000 now from under the table, and we know about that from the FBI thing. But, um, you know, the guys who are going to be one and done, the guys who are going to be four-year stars are probably going to be paid less per year, but they'll still, over the course of four years, accumulate $200,000 in salary. Mm-hmm. They'll pay taxes. They'll have a 401K. 
they'll have access to workers' comp insurance, uh -huh. which the whole reason the word student athlete exists for NCAA is to avoid having to pay workers' comp insurance. Like it's... Yeah, they're not university employees, right? Right, right, and they're not employees at all. And as a result, long-term injuries require all sorts of special things. We have a workers' compensation system in place in America because we've decided that that's the better way to handle workplace injuries. And uh, what Kevin Ware had happened to him during the during the NCAA Final Four, where he really horribly broke his leg, that's a workplace injury. Whether mm -hmm. you call them employees or not, those athletes should have have workplace insurance. Our athletes will. Um, we're going to have special education programs uh, set up by serious academics who study. We have a guy named Joseph Cooper. Um, he just switched schools. He was at University of Connecticut. And he just got, I think it's UMass Boston. He just got appointed the head of, a, of an apartment there. He studies um, essentially um, the, the rate, sort of critical race theory of athletics and the way that athletes are educationally exploited within, um, within the NCAA. And he's one of the people, there's another guy named Dale Sheptak, our CEO, Ricky, Ricky Vellante, teaches at Harvard, at the Harvard uh, MOOC system. So the three of them are really running this, and I just get to watch. But we're setting up education to teach financial literacy, to teach public speaking, to teach all the things that if you are going to be one and done, um, are the most valuable mm -hmm. things that you aren't being taught in high school now, and that uh, a freshman year in college generally isn't focused on, just to make sure we supplement whatever you do get from your freshman year. Separately on NIL, like all of our athletes are going to own all of their individual name, image, and likeness rights from day one. We don't need any law passed in any mm -hmm. state to do it. And as part of the contract, they grant to us the ability to commercialize their group license rights. And we grant to them their sneaker rights. Like just so there isn't a conflict. We will have a an apparel deal. We'll have the official, uh, you know, all the all the, the uniforms will will have a swoosh or the three the three stripes or whatever they call it. Be this or or leaning or mm -hmm. uh, you know European uh, umbro. Um, we'll have a, an official thing, and they will provide our base sneaker for athletes that don't get an individual deal. But any athlete that wants to do his or her his in this case own deal, we will eventually have women's sports. Um, will be able to. And so the stuff that everyone is so worried about, it's, oh, it's so complicated. How do you decide it? We just did it. Like it took <laughs> five minutes and, and Ricky's a lawyer and we're, we're writing out a standard contract. In year one, our athletes won't be unionized because you can't form a company union, which is good. Um, the, the, the employees have to do it on their own. But we anticipate that after the first year, the athletes who don't immediately go to the NBA or to a European league or Australian or Turkish or whatever, um, Turkey's in Europe, um, the, uh, will form a union. At that point, our existing standard contract will be collectively bargained and enshrined in a collective bargaining system. And we hope 
the union looks at the contract that we've made and it's like, yeah, this is pretty good. We're good with it. But uh -huh. to the extent to which we bargain over it, there'll be some bargaining. And, and um, how can you possibly have college students in different states unionized? Boom, we will. And um, I think there's like a Zen koan, how do you get a goose into a bottle? And the answer is, there it is. And um, that's sort of like how all these things get solved, is that they're, they're only difficult because the people who get all the money right now can't see a way to do it without losing some of that money. Mm -hmm. We're starting off with the premise that the athletes own their feet. The athletes own their faces. And, and we're essentially saying, we're going to pay you fifty dollars to $150,000 to gather together your group licensing rights, in part because it's harder for you to commercialize those group rights because you have to coordinate with everybody else. Uh -huh. We think we can make more money on it than you can, so we're paying you for those rights. Mm. We're going to leave to you your individual rights. Go do it. We might help you. We might say to our sneaker, with our sneaker partner, hey, we've got this great guy coming in. Go talk to him. He's going to be awesome. You should work with him. Um, but we're not going to stop him if he wants to work with somebody else. Mm. In terms of, like, I don't know, the problems that I see in the system, uh, there won't be – there's a guy named Naz Little. He got drafted, I think, number 25 this year. When he went into North Carolina, he was the number three recruit in the country. So he dropped from three to 25. Um, he did that because of a few things. Because Roy Williams didn't know how to coach him. He's a positionless player. And that's really popular in the NBA right now, but not in the University of North Carolina system. Um, and so college has never got a really chance to see him. We're going to use NBA rules. We're going to use NBA coaches, aspiring, like the fourth guy on the bench, come do two years in, in our league. We're going to work with – there are all these personal trainers that work with NBA stars. The day, the day that all the teams that aren't in the playoffs um, stop, they, they, they lose, and the season's over for them. Those athletes, they take a couple of weeks off. And then they go and start working with a personal trainer. Mm -hmm. As teams lose the playoffs, same thing. They take a little time off. And those guys, I think by the collective bargaining agreement, there's a date. Let's say it's September 15th. It's around, you know, it's a little before the season starts, where they report to camp and essentially they have to they can only work with team, team trainers from that point on. That whole crop of personal trainers essentially goes back and runs their gym. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, they're celebrity trainers in some sense because, you know, all summer I was LeBron James's trainer and now I train you. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to hire eight of those guys and they're going to be in each of our cities because our athletes during the season is when they're training their NBA guys. We don't need them for that. But during their school time, when every good athlete is going to, you know, would be going to school, but also staying in shape and developing and building muscle and all the things that you want to do to be a great, great, great athlete. We're going to make sure that that's a, a really directed and focused training um, in a way that like uh, you, you can't, you can't get that if you're traveling to road games and, you know, like essentially if you take all the time that college basketball takes away from study and you put most of it to study, and you put some of it to personal skills development. We'll mm -hmm. have we'll have a scrimmage a month during the season. But 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 
really the focus will be on get educated and get strong and work on your jump shot and, yeah. and you know, build your skills. Um, it's just going to, we just think it's going to be a better path to the NBA. It's certainly going to be life, life changing income for the kind of guy who is a five year superstar in college who plays two years in the Italian league and then comes back and goes, what do I do with this degree in general studies that doesn't do anything for me? And I never did an internship and I, I don't have any employable skills and what do I do now? We just think that having $200,000 to, well, first of all, you know, maybe if you went after halfway through the system, having the ability to go back to school and actually focus on school full time, but also to have focus on school much more during your time here and having a nest egg set up that you can use to start a business or to go to grad school or to get a second degree now that you realize that the dream of being in the MBA is not going to happen, that we can really change the, the, in some ways, change the way America thinks about athletes as humans. Mm -hmm. Maybe to start, start thinking of athletes as humans, right. but even if you've made that first step, to think of them as fully fledged humans with ideas and with thoughts. And so David West is our COO and I was, I knew him as the, in the way that you consume basketball as a fan of his. Mm -hmm. Now I know him as a, as a person. He's, he's got all these investments in green technology in Africa and knows a ton about electricity grids and, uh -huh. Like we have conversations that are, are completely unrelated to the HBL or basketball. And, and it's, it shouldn't have taken, like he's not the first athlete I know, but he's the first athlete that I've worked with on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't have taken that, that, real, that sort of thing to have the realization. But I want everyone, when they meet our athletes, when they watch the, the HBL um, calling it a reality show is wrong, is wrong, but the, the sort of like side content that we can generate because we aren't afraid of commercializing our athletes, name, image, and likeness, mm -hmm. we can have, have the like, you know, our Atlanta team can have its own like equivalent of, of the real housewives of Atlanta, but the real college basketball players of Atlanta, <laughs> it doesn't have to be sensationalized and fake drama, but, but we can have cameras and spots. We can see the guys, you know, like, you know, when you want privacy, don't come into the, the common room or whatever, but uh -huh. we're going to be generating this content. Like people will get to know our athletes as people. Whereas in the NCAA, they get to know them. You know, when you're in school with an athlete, I, I was in I went to Stanford in 1989 and we had a couple of guys who made the NBA from that team. And I knew one of the guys a little bit. He was in, in our dorms. He was good friends with my roommate. So, you know, I was friends with them the way you're friends with your roommate's friends. Like, hey, hey, Howard, how's this going? And like, you know, um, but to really get to know people, you can't, you can't know what James Wiseman is like if all you do is consume Memphis basketball. Mm. But if you, cons could, if you could consume Memphis as a, as a thing and, and get to know them in a, in a big way, but the NCAA prohibits that. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. You know, so again, we're the opposite of that. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is really exciting because I feel like in our culture right now, there is, there's a huge appetite for ventures or, you know, media or whatever it is that kind of corrects some of the, 
the inequities that we've been living with forever. You know, like even if it's like a, a woman Marvel superhero or something like those things, they just, you know, the box office goes crazy for these things. And I feel like, like if, if the message here, if you're going to, I guess I'm, I'm kind of wondering how you're going to market the whole thing. If it's going to be a thing where it's like, we're, we're trying to do right by these athletes and that's part of the whole kind of, you know, the marketing of it. I think people will tune in. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I, I definitely think we have to be great basketball. Sure. We might get people to tune into division three basketball with a heart for a couple games, mm -hmm. but division three basketball, no one watches it for a reason. Mm -hmm. Cause it's like it does, it's not worth the time it takes to watch it yeah. unless you are a big fan of the individual players. And so that's why their friends and family go to mm -hmm. division three games. And it's great. I'm not trying to knock division three basketball, but no one will ever succeed in making a successful commercial product out of it. Sure. So we have to recruit. We, we want to get something like half of the top 50 and then fill out the, we were eight teams. It's about a hundred guys. Mm -hmm. So half of the top 50, bunch of good international players and then the rest need to be top 150 top 250 we can't get down to the point where essentially everybody in our league should be good enough to play professionally when they're done whether mm -hmm. it's in america or in another country mm -hmm. and so we think every night we're going to have nba players playing against each other if you're a fan of duke and you watch all their games you get some great games against great players but you also watch them play elon and presbyterian and, and other sort of North Carolina area schools where it's not a fair fight. Yep. Yeah. And you don't really, you, I mean, maybe it's sort of fun to watch the Harlem Globetrotters beat the Washington Generals once in a while, but <laughs> it's much more fun to watch. We think a big appeal of our thing is we're going to have lottery picks and, and draft choices and European superstars mm -hmm. night in and night out. There will always be, Someone guarding someone, and you know that two years from now or a year from now, they'll be guarding each other in the NBA or on the same yeah. team. Maybe. And, and, the and that's team. something that, that no one else can offer in the sport. But mm -hmm. I agree with you, and we will market this. It's also the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But people will pay more for fair trade coffee than they do for exploited worker coffee. Sure. But they won't pay more for it if it tastes bad. Right. <laughs> so we have to make a good product, yeah. but we can charge a premium price in some sense or, or get a bigger audience by also being the ethically sourced version of college basketball. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that both are important. So like that, that's really, when we, when we talk about this, we all know, I don't want to bash too much on the ball family, but just a little bit. I think that the, the balls league was horrible for the sort of athletes right movement because the league was thrown together slapdash and also because it was clearly just designed to further the ball family interest um i think what's going down going on in australia in contrast that the nbl it's the national basketball league it's australia and then one team in new zealand five guys from the current freshman class in college chose not to play in, in the NCAA and went down to Australia. Um, they're getting paid something like 80,000 in the U.S. It's, they're being paid in Australian dollars, obviously. But um, one, of, one of them, a guy named RJ Hampton, got a sneaker deal with Li Ning, a big Chinese company. Makes kind of sense because China is a lot closer to Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, he's going to be drafted 
into the NBA next year. And, and Li Ning essentially got a year – like the shoe companies want to work with 18-year-olds. Yep. Wait till they get to the to the NBA. This is going to be a way of leaning, making its way into the NBA in a way that's been hard for them. We think we can provide that same sort of thing, but but that option, and it's a quality league. Um, uh, Andrew Bogut played in it last year before coming back and playing a little bit at the end of the of the NBA season. He was the player of the year, I think, in the NBL. Um, it has disadvantages for those guys. 18-year-old guys banging against Andrew Bogut. They're not ready for that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, their bodies aren't necessarily ready for that. It takes, it takes a, a lot to get that. Um, the G League is sort of a new option. The, 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 the NBA is offering um, uh, 250, sorry, $125,000 salaries to select contracts. And my understanding is that they have yet to get anyone to take it. Um, the, the NBA's G League is now offering $125,000 to call them select contracts. I think that they're going to have one per team as their theory, but no one has taken that offer. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Darius Baisley who was going to go to Syracuse and then announced that, no, he was going to go play in the G League under these contracts. I think the, except for these select contracts, the G League salary is less than $40,000 a year. It's not, it's not a good living. Uh-huh. Um, because you think, well, $40,000, if you're playing in Maine or, or Iowa, that's a decent salary. Yeah, but it's, it's expensive to be a professional athlete. And so that's a, a very low salary. It's similar to what I said with the WNBA. But then his, he got an agent, uh, Rich Paul, who's LeBron's agent also, Mm-hmm. And Rich Paul said to him, no, 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 we're not going to have you play in the G League against 28-year-old guys who are desperate for one more shot or their first shot in the NBA and who are going to wound you. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you will be exposed. So instead he arranged this really weird – he's doing a, a full-year internship with New Balance. He's being paid a million dollars to do this full-year internship. I think the internship essentially involves – training to be in the NBA next year, working with the, like essentially being a crash test dummy for a new balance to learn more about athletes feet. And it's, it's great. I'm, I'm happy for him, but that's sort of a unique thing. Yeah, sure. We hope to sort of be that, to be that, play that role. We don't want to launch and be half-assed about it. Mm-hmm. And so we were originally going to try to hit 2020. It became clear that we are, we would, we would not be full asked. <laughs> on Memorial Day of next year. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, now as it happens, the other problem with 2020 summer basketball launches is the Olympics. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Um, so by waiting until 2021, we can also – we'll be the only male five-on-five basketball in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, this goes back to sort of my sports economics stuff. The single biggest reason that sports leagues fail is that they enter into a space that's crowded and the incumbent already has all the good markets. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they, they either have to go, the only way you can see is to go into other markets, and the American League in baseball did that. There, were, there was a lot of space still. There were only eight professional yeah, yeah. teams. But also um, uh, playing in a different season. And so people mm-hmm. talk about the USFL being a failure. The only reason it was a failure was because, well, the main reason it was a failure was because Donald Trump got involved right. and moved them to the fall. Yep. Um, 
if they had stayed in their lane and they'd stayed in the spring, yep. they had a shot. But the other reason that they had difficulty was players in the NFL at the time were woefully underpaid because this is before the good free agency came in. Right. And there was a wage war. And there had been a wage war during the AFL-NFL days and the mm-hmm. WFL-NFL days. But generally speaking, unless you're really, really well healed, the incumbent league can outspend you, especially when they've been underpaying their workforce. So you come in and you pay your workforce well, and they go, oh, well, we've got plenty of extra profit to start paying the competitive level. And in fact, they're worth more to us than they are to you. So the the competitive level for us to pay them exceeds your wage. You have to pay them. If you want to compete with us, you're going to lose money. And so a way I talk about it is, like the reason that leagues fail is they because they either because they, they there's no space or they can't make league year two or year three payroll. Mm-hmm. We have two advantages. One is that we're going to not going to launch until we know we have enough funding to make year two payroll. Uh-huh. But also, our incumbent is philosophically opposed to a salary war mm-hmm. because the NCAA can't, on the one hand preserve its legal status as an amateur sports league and not pay billions in antitrust lawsuit damages uh, to folks like Jeffrey Kessler and such. And then also say, Oh, well, we've been saying all this time that if we pay our athletes, no one will watch, but there's this other league out there and and they're taking all our talent. So we're going to start paying our athletes and everyone will watch again. Like they can't have it both ways. And so we think we'll get five years of runway. Um, and so to tie this all back to like SB 206, I think the, the, we're going to, the HBL, if we launch, we will be the reason that NCAA athletes get their full rights because eventually the Power Five schools, or it's not even Power Five in basketball, it's more like they're like seven or eight conferences because, you know, the Big East, the new Big East is just as good a basketball conference as any power conference. Mm-hmm. The, the elite eight basketball conferences that are out there are going to compete against us. Maybe they'll ask to join us. Um, but, but the NCAA will adapt. And what will happen is, so one, we will have built a brand and it will be a real thing. And the kind of athletes that either don't, that are really into education, so they don't want to play during the season, mm-hmm. or who really aren't into education, so they would rather do a, um, a certified vocational program or do a community college and and defer their education till when they're done, they'll come to us. And the ones that want to play in March Madness or whatever will go there, but will essentially, there'll be choice. I think the Australian league will continue to be a a good option, maybe Europe. And so athletes will be better off, but in some sense, not because legislatures scrubbed a little bit of of the drag off of the system, Mm -hmm. even though I'm thrilled that they did, but because the forces of competition and Mm -hmm. press law, um, kicked in and and we actually got full citizenship through capitalism rather than right. legislation. Yep, right. Tying it all back together. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this has been this has been quite a ride. Um, really appreciate your time. Uh, I feel like I like I know so much more than I did uh, about an hour and a half ago. So um, 
I would apologize for talking so much, but I told you that I talk a lot. So. <laughs> no, true. That was you set the bar, and, yeah. and you know you you went for it. Yeah, but this um, is this isn't even close to our longest episode, so don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and if you're being sponsored, I hope you realize that you're now using my name, image, and likeness without <laughs> paying. So, so I too am a college athlete. <laughs> oh, are you? All right, okay, okay. That's good. Good to know. Um, <laughs> or at least in spirit. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, Completely ultimate. <laughs> uh thanks again um yeah this has been super enlightening i mean I, I just i really appreciate the fact that there are people like you in the world who are kind of fighting for for what's right like like th make it so that you know these students uh that they have kind of the full rights that the you know the rest of us have i mean you know somebody can be in the band the marching band and they're get compensated for their name image and likeness but yeah, you're... and there are some schools that give full marching band scholarships too. Uh -huh. uh, not Stanford, but but you know sure. there are programs that do, and those guys, they literally give up no rights mm -hmm. to get that scholarship. Yeah, uh, and it would be illegal for schools to prohibit them. Mm -hmm. uh, an individual school might be able to say, if you take the scholarship, you can't do a record album. But it would be illegal if two schools got together and said like two big bandy schools. Yep. Like, we're, why are we competing for all these band athletes? Let's just stop and say, and, and you know, and, and if they, the, the, the new standard contract prohibited them, it would probably be per se illegal, meaning they wouldn't even have a way to excuse it under like, you know, like, oh, but you have to understand there's benefits. Uh -huh. um, but it, it wouldn't pass the smell test. And just, uh, we maybe, maybe you we're done with this podcast, I don't know, but as, <laughs> as a bonus, as a bonus for your premium uh, um, in the er in the early 1990s, the Ivy League schools colluded on how much aid they would offer to high achieving academic students. Uh -huh. So they agreed none of them would offer merit scholarships at all, um, and that when they made need based offers, they would all offer the same thing so that they wouldn't be competing on sort of generating, mm -hmm. oh, well, we can find ways to make your need be this big or whatever. Um, and, and the Department of Justice, under the first George Bush, um, filled with high merit people from Ivy League schools, mm -hmm. said, wait a second, you can't do that. That's price fixing. I would have gotten a merit scholarship, but I had to pay because you guys all agreed not. So like they felt the injustice because the people being harmed currently were 10 years later version of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The department of justice has never stepped in for the exact same arrangement among schools in the sec, mm -hmm. not to offer, merit pay above above a certain level to athletes because many fewer of them are five-star football players in the Department of Justice. <laughs> and so that's a statement about identity, but you can also say like, it's a statement about the kind of labor, the kind of, of people who are valued as full citizens and the kind of people who aren't. And it's hard to have all those conversations without talking about race. Mm -hmm. So like it's, 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 it's really fucked up. And, um, and so 
like the way you said it, like it's good to know that there are people out there fighting for athletes. I'm not the only person. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of great people. If your listeners haven't read Taylor Branch's 2011 article in the Atlantic, The Shame of College Sports, where he turned it into an ebook, I think, called The Cartel. Uh-huh. And then there's a movie. So if you don't like to watch, read stuff, there's a movie called Schooled, The Shame of College Sports, I think it's called, or, or something um, close to that. Mm-hmm. All three of those are great introductions to thinking. Taylor Branch is a civil rights historian to thinking about college athletes' rights as civil rights. And I think that's a, maybe a good way to end it. That, that this is, if you're out there thinking, gosh, I wish I could be exploited like one of those college athletes and getting a full scholarship and having fancy locker rooms and traveling first class and all this stuff. It's like um, Kurt Flood, very famous baseball player, once said a well-paid slave is still a slave. Mm-hmm. And you can be privileged in terms of being well cared for and still be being denied your rights. Mm-hmm. And that's an injustice. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks again. Um, super informative and uh, yeah, really, really appreciate your time. Cool. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Eddie.